Welcome back to Principles in Practice. I'm your host, Chris Heaslip, and this week we're talking with Carrie Newhoff about self-management. Carrie is a former lawyer and the founding pastor of Connexus Church in Barrie, Ontario, and one of the most influential churches in North America. He's an avid blogger and the host of the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. His content has reached millions of people to help them learn how to lead better themselves and their teams. Well, hey everyone, welcome back to These Principles in Practice. This week, we are incredibly honored to have Carrie Newhoff with us. Carrie, welcome to the show. Oh, it's good to be with you again, Chris, and great to see you in this new iteration and, and this new venture. Just thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, hey, why don't we dive in and tell us a little bit about your story and uh, and how you came to found the church, uh, Connexus, and then uh, we'll go from there. Yeah, so um, I never thought I would be a pastor. <laughs> that was step number one. Um, grew up in a Christian home and gave my life to Christ numerous times, kind of slipped away as a teenager, uh, late teenager, but rededicated my life to Christ, but wanted to be a lawyer from the time I was a little kid and um, went to law school, um, met my wife there. That was the best thing to happen to me at law school. Uh I'm not charismatic. Some of your listeners are charismatic. I have total respect for that, but like I'm, I'm more reformed. I read the Bible. That's how I hear from God. But God got um, very involved, like supernaturally in my life when I was 24 and uh, unmistakably looking back on it, a call to ministry really shook me up. Uh, spent a few years testing it, probing it, trying to poke holes into it, finished law school, worked for a year in downtown Toronto in law, got called to the bar but really felt like, yeah, I think I am called to go to seminary. Um, so resigned from law, went into seminary, but still didn't think I had the gifts for pastoral ministry. I thought, well, maybe I'll get my doctorate and I'll teach or something. And, and um, but started uh, halfway through seminary, found out about three little churches that couldn't afford a real pastor, but could pay half to a student, a seminary student. So I applied and I won by one vote. 25 years ago in 1995 and came up to a little place an hour north of Toronto called Oro Medanti. I always say I'm from Toronto, but I'm really from Oro Medanti. Trust me, nobody in Toronto has heard of Oro Medanti. Okay. So that's why I always say I'm from Toronto, but an hour north of Toronto and I'm still here 25 years later. So started with three really small dying Presbyterian churches, mainline churches. We almost immediately started to see growth Um, Within five years, sold the buildings, amalgamated those churches into one, moved to an elementary school, was portable church for a few years, and we built a new facility, multi-million dollar campus, opened that up. And after about three years and some more rapid growth there, um, burned out really well, really hard. (laughs) And um, just my bad formula was that more people equaled more hours. Uh, Started over again the next year, recovered from burnout slowly, uh, but then reformulated as a non-denominational church, walked away from the building we had built, which was almost paid for, started over again as Connexus Church, a North Point partner, and went into two cities, uh, was portable in theaters. And then the last thing I did uh, as lead pastor in 2014 was um, help lead the vision around getting a broadcast location, opened that up in 2015. And then at the end of 2015, uh, as part of a succession plan, stepped out of the lead pastor role have been founding and teaching pastor. And as of 2021, will only be the founding pastor. I don't think they can take that away from you if you started something. So uh, I'll be totally off staff by the end of the year and uh, building into leaders. And then along the way, develop this this hobby that has become now, I think, a, a second vocation in my life, which is to build into leaders. So I'm a podcaster, blogger, author, speaker, and uh, that takes up most of my days these days. Fantastic. Well, just take us back there. What was going on at the time that led you to, and, and obviously the board, to kind of start that succession plan and look around? What was what were some of the signs that you were observing and, and what led you to kind of engage in that process? Well, a couple of things. Um, one was succession almost never goes well in the church, uh, and it doesn't in business either. So my parents are um, entrepreneurs, immigrants that came to the country. I was born in Canada. Uh, but they ran a family business for 25 years and I watched them struggle through succession. And when I was 16, I was my dad's succession plan. And he said, uh, you know, uh, such an insensitive teenager. He's like, Carrie, one day this can all be yours. Like it was at that time, one unit in an industrial mall. Okay. A, a tool and mold business. And I, apparently I said to him, 
I don't remember this, but I'm embarrassed to admit it. I said to him, dad, that's the last thing I want to do with my life. <laughs> and so uh, I have so much respect for my parents. They're great. They're both still living. But, you know, that succession plan ended. And part of it was it's tool of mold making. Like my dad was really good at what he did. I'm not good at math. Mm-hmm. And I worked on the machines. I worked on the, the lathe and the I can't even remember the mills. I, I don't even remember, but you know, the tolerances are within a thousandth of an inch. And even at 16, I thought, you know what? I know how to run the office. I can do that. I'm like white collar. I know how to do that. But if I never worked my way up from the shop, the guys would never respect me. They went on to have like yeah. 20, 30 employees. Um, they built their own facility, but they ended up winding it down. Um, and they, they did really well on the wind down because they couldn't find a successor. So I knew that I, I had seen it bobbled so often, either through um, people hanging on too long and losing their passion or frankly, the whole thing where, you know, church has good five, 10 years under a leader and then that leader leaves and then it tanks and then a good leader comes in and it goes back up. And, and then our church got way bigger than I ever thought. Like when you start with six people, you're not thinking, oh, one day we'll be, you know, three or 4,000 people will call this church home. Like we didn't think so. I'm like, don't screw this up. So I was 50 when I handed it over in 2015. And I had also noticed in my late forties that my passion um, was shifting that I was really enjoying leadership, that some of the things that used to fuel me were annoying me, like meetings and administration. And my irritation and frustration was growing. And my passion was shifting. And I thought, this is not good. Like, I can do this for a few more years, but like, this is going to show up. It's going to leak out. And, and I also had a successor, I thought. You know, I'd been thinking about this for years. And so that's what precipitated the conversation. A lot of prayer. Almost everybody you know, we had the blessing of people when we did it, but people were like, you're way too young for this. But looking back on it, I'm so glad we did it when we did it. Maybe, you know, speak directly to the leader out there who feels stuck in that season, you know, who, who feels like that, that maybe starts to feel some of those signs, some of the passion waning. um, And maybe they don't have someone already there. Like, what would you say to that leader who's, who's kind of starting to see some of those early signs, but you know, they love the organization that pulled their life into it. What, what would you advise them to do? Yeah, that's a really great question. So I think there's a couple of scenarios. One would be, um, is there another calling for you? Like that could be it. And, and, and I say that, I don't want to say, make that sound cavalier because I see a lot of people every time they get a little bit bored, they just change jobs, change cities. And well, you just, you know, that's like every time you have a bit of conflict in your marriage, you just find a new spouse and you move on. Like that's, that's not a long-term recipe for success. Could be a sign of a shifted calling. I think it was the beginning of that. The other would be um, make sure it's not burnout. Like sometimes all those symptoms you feel about frustration, irritation, loss of passion could just be you're burning out. So if that's like a widespread thing in your life, it could be burnout. And then the other thing I would do is you got to deal with that. Like go to a counselor, go to a spiritual director, try to figure out what is this? What is God doing in me? Because I think the passion of your church will never be hotter than the passion of its leader. And, you know, if you're not passionate about the ministry anymore, and I am, like we give to the cause, we are 100% behind and behind my successor, but I think I needed another seat. And um, so that was right for me. But yeah, that is a long term. And I saw, you know, Chris, you've seen this, I'm sure, in leadership. But when I was a 30-year-old guy just starting out, because I spent a decade in university. So, you know, I didn't really start till I was 30. I watched a lot of people in their mid-50s. And their passion was gone. Arguably, their calling had evaporated, but they were still in the seat. And I thought, that'll never be me. And then in my late 40s, I'm like, oh, this is what that feels like. So I chased it down before it really became an issue. And I handed the church off to Jeff, my successor, when we were the largest we'd ever been, money in the bank, like a really thriving organization, sort of, you know, going out on top rather than handing him something limping. And I thought if we, if I had kept that up for another five to 10 years, I might hand my successor a fraction of what it was at its peak. And and so he's done we haven't had a year of decline. Like I thought, you know, a couple of years will decline. No, we grew not as fast the first year, uh, but we're like 40% bigger 
than we were when I led it five years ago. And so it went from strength to strength, which is like the best case scenario. Does that um, hurt the ego a little bit to see someone come in and actually take it to the next level? I mean, certainly for me, coming out of Push Bay to see the company doing really well, uh, it kind of is like, oh, you know, the, the new leader is actually doing a, a really good job. <laughs> yeah, it's supposed to fail, right? Like you need me. Um, it, it's a really great question. And I, 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 you know, yes, I've had moments where, you know, I want, I want to have the best series that was ever done at Conexus. And, um, you know, I want people to remember me fondly. And I've had to chase that down in my prayer life. Like that is not coming from a healthy place. And um, in my life, it's not coming from a healthy place. So that is something I've really had to wrestle down. And Chris, I've seen succession botched more often than I've seen it succeed. And I've sometimes seen it up close hand. And what happens is the, the uh, predecessor, myself, yourself, we get in there and we start sowing little seeds of like, well, Jeff's not quite as good as I am, or, you know, my successor is not, or wow. And we just made a couple of rules early on. Number one, I was never, never going to publicly criticize him or privately criticize him that any criticism I had of Jeff would go directly to Jeff. And I would say it has stayed that way for five years and he made the same promise to me. So that's helpful. I, I eliminated that outlet. So anybody who heard that little pity party, whenever it showed up once or twice, it was my wife and my counselor. And, um, and then the other thing that really helps I think just to be totally practical is to have something bigger that you're pushing your life into. Um, if I'm sitting on the back deck, just trying to lower my handicap in golf, then it's really easy to look back on that going, gosh, I miss leading something and I could have done a better job. You know, I got this blog and podcast and speaking and book thing that's just taking all of my hours and it's going really well. So that's been helpful. Sometimes I think just totally transparent. You know, if I was sitting on my back porch, which I have no intention, I, I see this as a calling that's going to last decades, but what I'm doing now. But if I really was, would I have been that healthy? And then I think I would just have to go to a counselor and get on my knees and pray a little bit harder because all of that stuff is not from God and mm. it destroys churches. Um, probably as much as sexual sin does or, you know, stealing from the church or any other kind of moral failure, that kind of jealousy or backbiting or whatever and it gives you a, a, a new view of God, right? It's like, it's his church. It was never my church. And why would I ever wish ill on something I never would have wished ill on when I was leading it? I can't do that now. So, you know, I, 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 I just had to take that off the table. But yeah, and when it shows up, I just have to recognize it as sin and confess it and address it and move on. Taking a, a kind of similar tack to the same question, uh, was there a time that you had someone on your team who uh, perhaps was in the wrong seat uh, and you had to kind of have a conversation with them or maybe they came to you and they said, hey, Carrie, like, I just feel like I'm in the wrong seat. You know, someone who, you know, is a great mission fit, a great culture fit, someone who works hard, but they just clearly are not in the right seat on the bus for them. Yeah, like just generally speaking, I had that on the church at the church. I've yeah. I've I've definitely had that on my team too. And um, yeah, I would say the way I've approached that is very different than when I was a young leader. When I was a young leader, things were black and white, right or wrong, you're in or out. And now I'm realizing they're really basically good people. I do believe they're evil people. We tend not to hire them. Okay. So there are people who will be out to destroy you or whatever. And so that hasn't really been a factor. Um, but, you know, these are really good people and either their life situ situation. And, and I, I had a, a guy that I hired who turned out to be just the best I know at it. And we come alongside people like that because I'm an eight, Enneagram eight. So I'll come at you like a freight train. I got a nice smile, but I'll be like, Chris, this is not working out, man. Like we got to have a conversation. Okay. We got to move you. And I'm very direct. So I've, I learned early on, do not do that. Do not put me in those meetings because I don't mean to crush your feelings, but I'm going to do that. And so what I've learned over time is you got to help people fulfill their calling. And if the fit isn't a hundred percent right in the seat that they're in, you either move them to a new seat and larger teams really help. If you have two or three employees, Sometimes you don't have that luxury. If you have eight or 10 or 20, it's like, well, let's try over here. Let's see if this can work over there. I was just thinking today about 
this idea. I don't want to say what it was, but like, I've got one guy that has been on my team for a couple of years. He's doing a great job where he is, but I'm like, Ooh, I wonder if he'd like this more. Like you want to get the best for your, your employees. And so these days I, I try to approach it from that perspective. And I realized that a lot of the time, the problem is me. I'm the leader. I'm the lid. I didn't, you know, I talked to my assistant today and I thought I had told her something and I hadn't. And I was kind of frustrated that it didn't happen. And then I looked back at the correspondence chain and I'm like, I never told you. So why am I holding you accountable for something I didn't tell you? So I realized the longer I'm in leadership, the more I am the problem. So I love that. Uh, um I don't know if you read any of Bob Buford's stuff. Uh, he wrote Extra Time and another great book called From Success to Significance. And he, he talks in his book about how people kind of get to this midlife crisis point in their life and they kind of start trying to look forwards and they say, well, I have limited time left. I really need to do something significant with my life. And so they kind of rage quit their job. They you know, make rash decisions. They leave their spouse. They you know, go and buy a sports car. And um, he kind of talks about this idea of, you know, instead of just quitting something that you're in, you know, what if you can kind of ease into or try something else instead of just quitting your corporate job and trying to get a job, you know, in a church or a nonprofit, like why not try and go to four days a week in your job and do a day a week before to just see if you like it before you jump in. Um, and so I'd love to hear about, you know, how you made your way into podcasting with, with that kind of mindset, you know, because you didn't just kind of quit, you said, Hey, like, I'm going to bring someone in and I'm going to, you know, focus on the parts that I feel uniquely called to. And then you, you obviously started podcasting on the side. So tell us about how that started. Yeah, it did. It started as a hobby. So I had a massive burnout um, season in my life in 2006, just to timestamp it. And one of the things I realized that, that that's a whole other conversation for another day, but one of the things I realized is for a decade, I, well, actually not for a decade, since I was a teenager, I, I had no hobbies. It was like school all the time or work all the time. Or, you know, my, my hobby was I'm married and I have kids. Well, that's not a hobby. Okay. That's, that's a whole other category. So I had no hobbies and I thought I need to do something. So I experimented with different things, photography. I bought a bike, started exercising, uh, getting out on the road. And I thought I really enjoy like leadership and writing. And so um, I started blogging back in 08, 09. And like most bloggers was, you know, really good in January, but the time March comes along, I've got three posts left and, you know, the blog died and then, but I'm back for real this time. And that went on until about 2012. And uh, at that point I'd written my first solo book. My first book came out with uh, co-authored in 2010. And then in 2012, I wrote a book on change and I had read, um, Michael Hyatt's platform, which came out that year. And I thought, okay, yeah, I publishers don't sell books. Authors do. If anyone's going to read this book, I need, I need to do something. I said, well, I got this blog and it had some traffic, you know, maybe a thousand people per week or something, whether I tried or not. And I thought I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to start writing. And I just made a discipline of like three times a week before I was on the clock at church. So don't cheat your day job. I didn't even quit my day job. So three years before the succession, I just made the commitment and I had to set myself a crazy goal to keep myself motivated. So I'm like, in 2013, I'll have 100,000 downloads on my um, website, which I reviews. And, and I thought that's almost like saying a billion because at that point, 100,000 was that out of reach, right? So there's no way that's going to happen. Well, I started writing three times a week, built an email list, and, and that happened within the first few months. And I'm like, what is going on? And 2013 was like a million. And then I felt like I was late to the podcasting game. I'd been a consumer for a while, but in 2014, I'm like, I think I can do this in my spare time, launch a, launch a podcast. And I had banked, it was supposed to be bi-weekly and I had worked ahead. And then we had worked so far ahead that like, if I'm interviewing you now, you're going to be on my podcast next summer. It's like, well, that sucks. So uh, we went to every week and it became a very sustainable rhythm. And then that, that side hustle, which I didn't monetize for quite a few years, um, just became so compelling and so much momentum and the succession thing was happening. So uh, what's happened in the last five years is, you know, I went from, you know, maybe doing half my time at Conexus and half my time on leadership to, um, 
spending 90% of my time on leadership. And this year I went to very part-time at Conexus and next year it'll be hundred percent leadership. So that was really good. And then we figured out, we figured out the revenue model, like how would this actually pay for the team and everything after we got the audience. And I think that's the big thing because, you know, people are like, Oh, I want to, and I'm not, I'm not building this to sell it. I'm not building, this is what I believe my calling is for the next 20 or 30 years to build into leaders. So I'm, I'm very excited about that, but the revenue followed the audience. And I see a lot of people trying to get the revenue in place before they build the audience. And, you know, if you take care of your, if you help your audience, all the other stuff eventually works itself out. I love that. And, and, uh, at what point did you realize it was going to be successful? Was it early or did it take some time before you really see, wow, this is really quite something? Um, no, it happened pretty quick. So 2013 for the blog, 2014, 15 for the podcast, uh, it was taking off and it was like top 2% performance when you look at comparative metrics. So that wasn't revenue because there was no revenue. <laughs> that was just, I was all, you know, any additional income I had was speaking income from getting on an airplane and flying somewhere and speaking somewhere. So that was just building an audience. And, and I think that's really the ideal scenario is you want to build trust, you want to build a relationship. And then when you're monetizing, when you try to figure out, well, you know, and that was a big, like tough point for me. Um, because I brought my assistant with me in 2015 when I left the church, but I could only afford like quarter time, half time. And then how do you, so we figured out the revenue model. Um, but I didn't, I didn't want to create this great big thing where the tail was wagging the dog and all of a sudden everything I did was paid and everything. So we, that took a, a lot longer to figure out. Um, but no, the, the, the success came. And then it's constant experimentation. Like we tried some things that didn't work. I tried a second podcast earlier on. And I wasn't very happy with the way that went. So I gave it to someone else and uh, we tried different projects. We're planning for a big pivot next year and more video, um, less written content, more video content and some other things like that. So we're always experimenting. Uh, and I think that's the freedom, particularly of an online business. You know, if you're a restaurant and you spend a million dollars building out a patio or something like that, or, or new seating, you're pretty sunk cost, but you can experiment a lot easier and, and, more cheaply online. Love it. And then on the back of that, obviously your, your last book didn't see it coming. Seems like it just really, you know, hit a, hit a nerve. Um, how did you uh, come up with the idea to kind of talk about burnout and was it based on your experience or just something that you're observing in others? It was both actually. So I, I started cause I'd been in leadership for over 20 years when I wrote, didn't see it coming and I kept thinking, what are the things that I have been struggling with as a leader that nobody seems to talk about? So, you know, cynicism is the first chapter. It's like, I don't, like, I kept asking people, what's your go-to resource on cynicism? And they're like, I don't have one. And I'm like, neither do I. Now, that'll be a book one day, but um, not right now. I'll do a whole book on that. And then character. Like, we all know what happens when character implodes because you have to resign and you know, you hurt the church or you hurt the organization and your family's crushed and, you know, all that stuff. And I'm like, well, who builds up character? And then I had that episode of burnout and had enough distance from it where I thought I could be helpful. And so I just, I just, it turned down like seven, I experimented with different ideas, but seven things. And then I also saw these, as you see the, the struggle of leaders, the leaders who are thriving, the leaders who are not thriving, the leaders who failed out or stalled out or quit, um, particularly in ministry, it's that thing, you know, look to your left, look to your right. Only one of you is going to be in ministry three decades from now. Well, that unfortunately is true. And like, well, what is that? Because it's rarely you're not smart enough. It's rarely you don't work hard enough. And so these were sort of the silent killers. These were, these were the seven things that I saw at times in me and, and definitely in the lives of other leaders that I knew and trusted that that I thought, oh, th these can be the things that sink you if you don't watch for them. And they operate under the surface. So that's why I wanted to bring them to the surface for didn't see it coming. I love that. Do you want to just take us through the seven? So the first one is cynicism. Um... Yeah. So cynicism, that was something like, I I'm an optimist. I, I would say I've reclaimed my optimism right now, uh, which is a great place to be. But after a decade in leadership, I had grown to about 90% cynic and 10% optimist. And that was really concerning for me. So I just write about like, where does cynicism come from? 
And in my view, it comes from knowledge. Um, you know too much. The reason you're so happy when you were young is because you were stupid, right? Like you didn't know anything. You, you didn't know that people would stab you in the back. You didn't think that people would leave your church. You didn't, you didn't think that people would betray you or hurt you or talk smack about you behind your back or whatever. And when you find out all that stuff, it, it makes you cynical. And so I talk about, you know, that's how it happens. And then what's the antidote? Well, I suggest the antidote is the gospel. And, you know, that sounds like a Jesus answer, but, you know, we're people of hope, you know, out of death comes resurrection, but it's also curiosity. And so I'm trying to stay curious. I'm reading books, reading from different perspectives. I'm, you know, this morning I sat uh, in front of the lake. It's a beautiful November day. And just watched the sunrise and was kind of like caught up in how beautiful that was. It was just, it was spectacular. And like, I don't want to lose that. I want that to grow. When I'm 80, I want to be more alive and amazed and wondering and curious than ever before. So that's cynicism. Then I cover um, character, right? Uh, competency gets you in the room, but character keeps you in the room and your character is your legacy. And then uh, let me see, what else do I talk compromise, about? Compromise, disconnected. Yeah, oh yeah, moral compromise. Yeah, moral yeah. compromise. So the antidote to that is character. And then uh, talk about pride and uh, irrelevance. Irrelevant. I didn't want to put irrelevance in the book. And um, I got readers who said, yeah, you need to put that in the book. Because the others are kind of like soft character things. But a, a lot of the time, you know, and I'm glad I put it in because I've heard so much feedback from readers who are so grateful for the fact that that is in there um, because irrelevance is a big deal for a lot of people. And um, you start out as a hot shot at 25 and at 45, nobody's listening to you or all your stories are old or all your, you know, movie, movie illustrations are old or your, your music choices are stuck in the nineties or whatever, or the seventies. And so um, this is a big issue, I think, for a lot of people. I also write about burnout. And then my favorite is the last chapter, which is emptiness. Mm -hmm. And um, it's, it's this idea that what if all your dreams came true? How would you feel? Because we live under this idea that, you know, if my company really takes off, if my church really grows, if we can add that fifth location or second location, or if everybody comes back to church, or if one of my sermons goes viral, I'm going to be so happy. And since I was a kid, I've been fascinated by Ecclesiastes. And, you know, here's, here's uh, the richest guy in the world. He was so rich that silver was devalued in his lifetime. Like nobody has that kind of money today where you're devaluing precious gems, you know, like precious metals. Like pe people don't have that power or that wealth today, but he did. And he had everything. And he was miserable. And he comes to the conclusion that it's really about God, sort of, sort of, but he just says it's meaningless. It's meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And I found that in my life, you know, like one of the, one of the recurring narratives in my life is how much is enough? And the answer is more is enough. And of course it never is. And so I've had to chase that down and, and I've, I've isolated that to a tale of two kingdoms, you know, where, where when it's a kingdom of God, it's enough. If my motivation is good, and it will vary from day to day and hour to hour, but if my motivation is pure and good, what God gives is enough. God can determine size. When my motivation is selfish or self-focused or it springs out of insecurity, then I'm in a very different place. And that's when it gets scary and nothing is ever enough. So, you know, that's, that's why I love to talk about emptiness. Well, and I'm dying to ask you this too, because I think it plays right into this exact point. I mean, as an A, as a, you know, type A personality, hard charging, you know, I imagine some people are thinking, hey, how do you make time to go, you know, check out the sunset? You know, how come you're not just on your iPhone answering emails all the time? I mean, we were talking, you know, before we came on uh, about taking a nap, you know, um, the, the kind of the, the high, you know, effectiveness person out there is thinking to themselves, like, how do you do that? Like, you know, what do you say to that person when they, when they think that to themselves, like, oh, how, how do you have time to do this? Or how do you, how do you, you know, why are you not working harder, harder, harder? Well, it almost killed me. So the, the good answer to that is it, it almost led to the grave. So when I was 41, I burned out and uh, that was so painful and overworking was part of that. 
Um, so that was number one, but then it took me three to five years to really reconstruct my life. So, you know, I was, I was sort of in the saddle. I was still leading. I actually launched a church, but it was a couple of years after we launched Connexus and I was probably at 70, 80%. And you can do a lot on 70, 80%, um, when you're recovering from burnout, but I didn't get to a hundred percent and sort of a new normal, uh, probably until four or five years after that burnout. And, that was a lot of coaching and a whole lot of counseling and a whole lot of reflecting and prayer and me trying to figure out, okay, there's something wrong with my formula in the first decade. And that more people, bigger church equals more hours was, was almost killed my marriage, almost killed me, almost like it was, it was awful and brought out the worst side. If you know the Enneagram, there's a healthy eight and then there's an unhealthy eight. And I spent too much time in the unhealthy eight categories. And so I'm like, well, what do I need to do? And at the heart of it is, is trying to figure out um, what I was best at and when I was at my best. And um, I re- when I was in my 20s, I thought I was good at everything. Now that I'm in my 50s, I'm like, you're barely good at one thing. So, you know, basically I'm a communicator. That's what I am. I, I can talk, I can write, I can interview, I can speak. Um, I can think, but I'm a communicator, not a very good organizer. I'd be a terrible CFO, not a very good COO. I'm a visionary. Um, so why don't I stick to that and then, and then hire a team around me? So that helped. But I also noticed that in, in the same way that I'm not good at everything, um, not, you get 24 equal hours in the day, but not all hours are created equal and not all hours produce equally. So I was noticing that I'm really kind of a morning person at this stage in my life and have been for decades now, and that I produce my best work at like from 7 a.m. to about 11 a.m. That's when I'm thinking clearest, when I have the best ideas, when I can articulate them most succinctly. And it doesn't matter. You don't have to be a morning person. That could be, you know, 8 p.m. to midnight for you or midnight till two or whatever. But all of us have like three to five peak hours. And I call them the green zone. I got a book coming out next year where I said, your day is divided into basically green, yellow, and red zones. Red zone is when you're too tired to be in the meeting where you're like, oh, when is this going to be over? Where you got toothpicks in your eyes to keep them open. And you're trying to answer your inbox. You takes you 10 minutes to answer one email. That's your red zone. We all have a few hours a day where we feel that way. And then your yellow zone, it isn't terrible. You're not falling asleep, but you're not at your peak either. So it's just all that space in between. And I think we only get three to five green zone hours. And as I began to realize, I only got three to five super productive hours in the day. I looked at what I was best at, what I was most gifted at, what when I do it, actually produces the most results and moves the needle forward. I guarded that time and I said, I'm going to do what I'm best at when I'm at my best. And then my productivity skyrocketed. Like some days, like today was one of those days. I I could have been finished at 10 o'clock this morning. I had interviews to do and a few other things, but like my productive work, it's done. And um, I I didn't have that in the first decade of leadership. And so Um, It's really moving to that fixed calendar where if you had asked me for a a 9am meeting, we would have a one-on-one conversation. Is there any other way that I could have some other time? Because I need to guard that time, protect it. When I do what I best at, when I'm at my best in that green zone, that's when my productivity soared. So now, and narrow my focus, saying no. Uh, I really had to master the art of saying no. And being really clear to make sure that the things that I feel called to do are the things that are on my calendar. And because like you, I I get, you know, dozens of requests a week, sometimes a day. Can you do this? Can you do that? Can you do this? Can you do that? And I've gotten a much better filter at how to say no, which allows me ironically to get way more done in less time and serve far more people. I love that. I think some of the biggest CEOs in the world say, you know, I think this might be might be Jeff Bezos says, I get paid to make about five decisions a year. So when those decisions come up, I need to have the capacity and the energy to really think through them in a, in a detailed way. Um, but is there something that you would say to yourself, you know, to try and crack through and, you know, because it, it really is a big ego challenge, right? Like uh, just you know, the, the executive, the, the pastor who's just at the dinner table and can't put their phone away. Like, like what, what do you say to someone in that situation? You know, what would you have said to yourself? Like, Hey, you just, you just don't need to work 
that hard? You know, what, what would you say to that person to try and break through to them to say, you know, just, just kind of ease back a little bit? Well, figure out, like plot the trajectory of that. Like, where is that going to lead you long-term where you're perpetually distracted? You only have your kids for so long. And I'm keenly aware of that. Mine are 28 and 24. Uh, They don't live here anymore. You know, like I would love to get my thirties back and take what I know now and apply it to who I was in my thirties. My kids and I've had that conversation. They're like, dad, it wasn't that bad. I'm like, yeah, I think it was pretty bad. So, you know, there, there, there are do-overs I don't get in this life. So I do have regrets. People say I have no regrets. It's like, no, I have regrets. I have quite a few of them actually. So I would say that. And then secondly, like the enemy to growth, right? Like, like think about that. You're, you're constantly available. I counted up my inboxes when I was writing this book at the time I had 11 inboxes. It's like, I can't answer 11 inboxes. So I never answer. Like, you're going to have to decide what you're not going to do so that you can decide what you're going to do. And Steve Jobs said, and I'm paraphrasing this, it's in the book, but Steve Jobs said when he was reflecting on his time at Apple, I'm actually more proud of what we decided not to do than what we decided to do. People think creativity is coming up with all kinds of new ideas. It's actually coming, it's actually deciding what you're not going to do. And so, you know, I'll give you an example of of today. I've got a two-day retreat coming up with my team tomorrow and the day after. So that's all I'm doing. Uh, I'll have a little bit of time first thing in the morning before the retreat starts to work on a couple of projects or whatever. Uh, And today I cleared the deck so that this morning I watched the sunrise, prayed, read my Bible, uh, got in, uh, did a little bit of work, cleaned up my inbox from yesterday, um, paid attention to what was going on, got some stuff teed up. Uh, Then I did an interview this morning at lunch. I did a 90 minute bike ride, had some lunch. Then I took a nap. Now I'm doing interviews in a couple of meetings and that'll be about it. Maybe another hour of admin, like that's it. And that's like, I would say to the person who's so scattered, it's like, do you actually know what you're called to do? And just let it hang there. And then do you actually know what you're best at? Because I can't, I can't solve everybody's problem. Like I don't know how to do that. What I do know how to do is I know how to produce content. And I know if I can listen, I, I read, um, listen to an audiobook today, uh, listen back to my leadership podcast while I was cycling. And then I spent about a half hour reading Dorrance Kieran's Goodwin's Leadership in Turbulent Times. I'm mm-hmm. interested in finishing that book. And I've got, t- I need to have input to actually generate output that is meaningful and helpful. And so if I don't feed that, right? Um, it's almost like, imagine your life is, is a garden like if you're not tilling the soil, if you're not fertilizing it, if you're not watering it, if you're not nurturing it, if you're not pruning it, um, you can get a really nice, you know, display of flowers or fruit or vegetables or whatever for a few minutes, but it's, you're not going to produce your best quality. So what is the ecosystem you need to be able to produce your best work? And being torn in a million directions by other people's priorities is not going to help you get to where God wants you to go. I can hear the uh, audience. Yeah. Together, say oof, you know, you just hit us where it hurts because, yeah, especially for the the eights and the threes, you know, the it's like we're just so hard charging. We have to do that one week, just one more call, just one more, it's just that last thing. And this approach is almost well, completely uh, counter to that. If I can, if I can use a very recent example, and you can cut this out if you don't want to use it, but one of your team members, Derek, I'm like. I know your name. Where's your name from? And you guys worked together at your previous iteration and uh, previous company. And he said, I had asked you to write content on our blog like six or seven years ago. And you were kind of up and coming and you said no. And he said it was one of the most painful no's that I got. And I felt bad about it. I mean, I didn't specifically remember it. I remembered him, but I didn't remember that. And I said, okay, can I guess why I said no? Because if I didn't say no for this reason, I got it wrong. And he said, yeah. And I said, okay. I said no, because you probably asked me to write content that was unique to your blog, right? And he said, yes. And I said, that's why I said no. If it was like a republish, we almost always say yes to that. So if, if, if that was a no to that, that was a mistake on my part. Um, but I'll tell you why I had that rule. Um, I only have so many ideas, And I don't want to be hoggy or proprietary about them, but like, you know, with what I'm doing for leaders, 
I want to feature those ideas on my blog. And then if you want to republish after or whatever, but I, if I start writing for you and then I'm trying to write for me and then I'm trying to write for, you know, Inc. Magazine or I'm trying to write something else unique, like I'm going to spread myself in five different directions. And, and, but what was interesting about that is I already knew the principle behind why I said no um, seven years ago or whatever that was. And it's still the same principle I have today. And, and, and I didn't have those principles because I spent my first decade of leadership reacting and it's like, oh, this is an awesome opportunity. Okay, I better do this. You know, there you had an incredible company and have one now. And I'm like, I should do this. But, but I got a lot more disciplined and just said, said, no, I can't do it because I have been pulled in 17 directions and I can tell you it is painful. And now if it had been a republish, it would be like all day long, no problem. I love that. Well, let's pivot to your new book. Um, uh, uh, tell us a little bit about it, how you came up with it. I mean, I, and I love the title. So, uh, so tell us the background to it. Yeah. So it is the story. <laughs> the book was so many things along the way. I think I wrote five versions of it. It was going to start as a burnout story, a burnout book. And then I thought, no, because the solution, which is what I was talking about, the green zone, yellow zone, red zone, fixed calendar, which we now call the thrive calendar and do what you're best at when you're at your best. That seemed to be the content that was resonating most with people. And um, so that's what we pivoted the whole book to being about is we're all overwhelmed, we're all overcommitted, and we're all overextended and overworked. So what is the solution to that? Because technology only makes that worse, right? Like the more, <laughs> the bigger your phone gets, the more social networks there are, the more inboxes there are, the more overwhelmed you are, this isn't going away. And so I just share the principles that have helped me and that I've taught to date in the high impact leader course, which I've, I think like 3000 leaders have gone through now, um, revise them, refine them, and I'm putting it in book form. So I'm very excited about that. And it's basically uh, the principles and strategies you can use to get time, energy, and priorities working in your favor. Most people don't focus their time. They don't leverage their energy and their priorities get hijacked by other people. So the book is designed to help you focus your time, leverage your energy so that you're using your peak three to five hours, and then how to, how to realize your priorities because you know everybody only connects with you to get their priorities done. Nobody will ever ask you to accomplish your priorities. They'll only ask you to accomplish theirs. So it is that, and that's the biggest section of the book. It's like, how do you get rid of all the inbound and still be a nice person where you can have real conversations with people so that you can focus on what you're called to do? I love that. Um, just like, I mean, thank you for sharing it with me ahead of time. I had a chance to read some of the pieces from it. Uh, I know you opened with the talk about burnout and uh, I think it was actually at the Push Bay conference last May, we did the survey oh. through the app. Uh, and, and 93% of people were suffering from some form of burnout. That's in the introduction to the book. It made the final cut. And yeah, that was quite a moment at the Push Pay Summit in Dallas. And I remember, I don't know, there were 800 leaders there. And you guys had the brilliant idea that um, we would live poll the room and see how many people who in the last 12 months had experienced some symptoms of burnout. And when the results came into my phone and I looked at them and it was 93%, like I just stopped. And I got, even now, like I'm feeling emotion. Like I just got totally choked up. And I just thought about all the pain in that room and all the leaders who were just honestly, people don't get burned out because they don't care. They get burned out because they care. And it just, it just broke me. So it's sort of the burden for this book. And when you look at the stats, Gallup's done surveys, like, I think 70% of millennials generally say that they've experienced some form of burnout. And so it's like, you don't have to let, and then I got a, a good friend, John Acuff. And I remember him asking me a few years ago, we were in a green room speaking at the same event. And John just said, so is this inevitable? Like, do you, do you just have to burn out? Cause he was like 38 at the time or so. So basically you're telling me in five years, I'm just going to burn out, destroy my family and then have to start over again. And I'm like, that is a really good question. And I, I'm writing this book and trying to bring this to a bigger audience because it's not my how do you recover from burnout book only. It's like, how do you prevent this from happening? And so I hope to be able to say to John, and he's, he's had a hand in the book too, with just you know bouncing ideas off of, no, you don't have to burn out. I want to change the answer to that story. It's not inevitable. 
And so that's my hope. It'll be out in September of 2021. So I'm sure early in 2021, you'll be able to pre-order, et cetera. But uh, right now it's living on my computer. I love that. And just to you know, bring the, the conversation in for a landing before we get to the quickfire questions, one of the other images that you gave in the book is, you know, look, everyone has the exact same amount of time in the day. I mean, the president of America, you know, has the exact same amount of time as everyone else. So the question isn't how do you get more time? The question is how do you manage your time and manage your energy to be more effective? And I thought, wow, that not that a really great challenge to leaders that we keep trying to just, you know, as you say, just, just a little more, another hour here, a little hour less sleep, you know, and we keep pushing, pushing. And it really is, hey, we all have the, we're all given the exact same amount. So the question becomes, stop trying to create more. How do we, how do we actually become more effective? That insight hit me when I was leading a fraction of what I was leading today, when I was still trying to get out of that, or probably still in the jaws of more people equals more hours, right? Which, and you know that, you scaled push pay. It was like crazy insanity when you, when you have a growth curve like you have. And us mere mortals, we don't really handle that particularly well. And, and that just hit me like a ton of bricks one day where it's, I was reading this dumb little book, I think written for school children on how the president of the United States orders his or her day. And, you know, it just hit me. It's like, yeah, if I became president of the United States tomorrow, I would not get any more hours in the day. You know, somebody leading a billion dollar company or the largest church in the world, they don't get any more time than I do. And I had used the excuses, like, I don't have the time, Chris, I just don't have time for that. Or, I don't have, and, and then I realized that embedded in our language is a lie. Like I didn't get a chance to do it. Yeah, you did. I had a chance to do it. I had the time to write the book. I had the time to do this interview. I had the time to go play catch with my son in the backyard after work. I had the time to get eight hours sleep. I had the time to take a nap. I had the time to watch the sunrise. And when I got really honest, brutally honest with myself, and I, I stopped allowing myself to say, I don't have the time. And that simple psychological switch is like, no, I do have the time. Well, then that forces you into a choice. Are you going to do it? Because you can't, it's, it's what, um, oh, uh, Greg McEwen says, right? You can do anything. You just can't do everything. And we fall into this lie that, yes, I'll get it done or I'll squeeze it in. And so I just had to get, you know, ruthless with myself, deliberately honest with myself, I have the time for date night. So it goes into my calendar every week and I protect it. And I have time to be with God and it goes into my calendar and I protect it. And I have time to write well and to think well, and it goes into my calendar and I protect it. And then if I got some leftover slots, maybe there's some other things I can do too. That's fantastic. This has been amazing, Carrie. We'll have five more questions here just to wrap up. We call it the yeah, quick yeah. fire round. Uh, so, uh, apart from your own and the Bible, what's the most impactful leadership book that you've ever read? Oh yeah. So it's an obscure one. Um, it's Henry Nowen before he was the Henry Nowen we know, uh, it's called the Genesee diary. It was published in 1974 and it's kind of apropos to the conversation we're having today. Henry Nowen was a, a well, well, that time, not well known for what he is now as a spiritual formation teacher. Uh, but he was a Roman Catholic priest that was an up and comer on the academic circuit. And he felt like he was losing his soul in the process. So he went to um, a monastery in upstate New York in Genesee County. And he just stayed there for six days and kept a diary or six months and kept a diary. And so the Genesee diary is just his diary of those six months. And you can see God shaping his soul into the Henry now and that he became. Uh, so that's probably my favorite book. I love that. Hundreds of people are now Googling that on Amazon. <laughs> um, I'm to make it a bestseller 50 years later. Exactly. Uh, okay. Second question. If you could only use one word to describe your leadership style, what would it be? Hmm. I would say helpful. It's a filter we use. My goal is just to help people succeed. You know, you mentioned Bob Buford. One of my favorite quotes of Bob Buford is, my fruit grows on other people's trees. I don't think that was true of me as a younger leader. I hope that's true of me as an older leader. Um, I don't want it to be about me. I want it to be about what happens in the lives of other people that I have the privilege of serving. And I hope I can do that through helping them. 
Okay, the third question. What is your biggest distraction working from home? <laughs> oh, my short attention span. I have a hopelessly short attention span and I will, I'm the best procrastinator, not procrastinator, I get stuff done, but like, oh, I think I can mow the lawn. Oh, uh, maybe I'll unload the dishwasher. So <laughs> yeah, I, I have to battle myself. And I basically, I can do like one or two hour blocks without having to step up, get a cup of tea or, you know, do something else. Okay, number four, tell us about a time someone believed in you when they really shouldn't have. Mm. I'm say my wife. Um, she has never lost confidence in me. And when I was at my lowest in that, that season of burnout, um, she just kept telling me it was going to be okay. And there have been times where I've taken really big leaps, like walking away from the church at 50 as lead pastor. That was a big risk and it could have gone very poorly, but she is just a, a solid believer. So Tony, thank you. Okay. Last question to, uh, to land the plane. Um, you've had, a, I mean, you talk to just incredible leaders on your show. Um, what's the thing that's the most non-obvious, you know, leadership characteristic that some of these incredible leaders have in common? I mean, you've talked to, you know, just, just some phenomenal leaders and they, uh, you know, I think there must be some, some character traits that you've observed, you know, behind the scenes. Humble and personal. Um, there is, contrary to what you would read in the headlines, a lot of humility. Um, well, and Jim Collins, surprise, surprise, said that is a level five leader. The difference between a level four, level five is humility. And he fought against those findings. If you know the story behind, um, I think it's good to great said that can't be true, but his researchers all told him it was true. And sure enough, he, he now says the difference between a good leader and a great leader is humility. I see that in the best. And I have had the privilege of interviewing hundreds. And so often behind the scenes is actually more exciting than on stage with some of these leaders. And then personal, um, you know, the, the, the degree to which those leaders actually care and know your name and look you in the eye and care about your family and you realize that, that one of the reasons that they're able to minister to so many is they never forget the individual. And so it, it's not the like entourage and do you know who I am and like all that. I don't, I don't probably have a lot of time for those leaders anyway. Um, but, but the degree to which some of those have blossomed into friendships and relationships and kindness and all that is, is really, really cool. Well, Carrie, this has been absolutely amazing. I mean, just pulling back the curtain and hearing, you know, some of your story and, uh, and some advice for leaders to really help manage themselves, their time, their energy. Uh, um, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for making the time. Chris, so exciting uh, to be here and to talk to you again. And thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us today. And we'll see you next time on Principles in Practice. Don't forget to check out the links in the description below for more information about our guests this week. Don't forget to hit the like and subscribe button on your way down there to keep up with all of our latest content. That's it for this episode and we'll see you again next week.